such as in Return of the Jedi, where, where Luke is wrestling with having to confront Darth Vader again. He knows he's his father now. Last time he met him, he cut off his hand. He doesn't want to do it. He says he can't do it. But the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi appears to him and says, you cannot escape your destiny. You must face Darth Vader again. In other words, there's this cosmic, impersonal force that is governing everything. So Luke doesn't really have a choice in the matter. It's already been decided. He has to face Vader again. This is his destiny. Well, this form of destiny has Eastern philosophy and pagan influences. But interestingly, we as Christians, we as believers, we have a destiny too, albeit a very different destiny, which we will spend our time this morning talking about. Luke's destiny was an uncertain path to meet Vader with no guarantee of what was going to happen, just that he had to do it. Ours is not that. Rather, our destiny is a sure path governed by God that leads to His glory and our greatest joy. It is difficult, but it is wonderful. And so I hope by the end of this, really, to to just encourage you and, and help you through God's Word this morning. So again, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain." So since we're jumping into the middle of this book here, let me just spend a, a few minutes kind of catching us up as to what Paul is referring to here. Uh, specifically, he's referring in verse 1 to his being in Athens. We actually have quite a, a bit of background about how Paul got there, all the circumstances surrounding it in Acts chapter 16 and 17. You, you don't need to turn there, I'll just summarize it for you. Acts 16 tells us Paul's second missionary journey led him to proclaiming the gospel for the first time on the continent of Europe. His missionary's first stop in Europe was at Philippi, where Paul and Silas preached and then were imprisoned and beaten for proclaiming the gospel. After being released from there, they made their way to Thessalonica, to whom this letter was written to. And we know from Acts 17, they were there for at least a few weeks proclaiming the gospel and establishing this church. But it seems like in pretty short order, some Jews in the city became jealous. They formed a mob. They caused a whole bunch of chaos in the city, which then precipitated Paul and Silas's fleeing the city by night and going to a neighboring city, Berea, where for a short time they successfully preached the gospel there. Until, believe it or not, the Thessalonican Jews actually followed them to Berea and stirred up the crowds there, which then caused Paul to flee that city as well and go to Athens. So that's how Paul ended up in Athens. That's what he's referring to in verse 1. He was beaten, imprisoned, chased out of cities until he ended up in Athens, the philosophical capital of the world, where Acts 17 tells us he preached the gospel in the market every day. But as the true servant that he was, he doesn't really uh, seem to have been thinking about himself very much throughout all of that. 
He wasn't consumed with himself. He wasn't doubting God's call on his life because things were going so terribly. He, he wasn't asking for help or support from the Thessalonians. He had given so much to them now that it was their turn to return that because he was in trouble now. None of that seems to really have been on his mind. His thoughts don't seem to have been on himself at all as he makes clear in these verses. Amidst all the craziness of his life, he was actually consumed with worry for the Thessalonian church, so much so, he says he couldn't endure it any longer. He says that in both, both verses 1 and 5. And so, as verse 5 says, he needed to learn about their faith, so he decided it was best at this critical time to send one of his most faithful associates, Timothy, to go to Thessalonica to check on the church. He just had to know what was going on with them. So Timothy, whom he calls in verse 2, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, went to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. But the strengthening and encouraging Paul has in mind here was specific to one main worry, one main concern. And that was that this church was essentially born into affliction. Because, of course, they, they watched the founder of their church take, chased out of their city, and then that Jews that then, that then chased Paul to Berea came back and unleashed their wrath on them. This church was literally born into affliction. So the worry that was dominating Paul, as verse 3 says, was that their faith had been disturbed by these afflictions. The word translated disturbed, or if you have the New King James, shaken, that, that word literally refers to a dog wagging its tail. In other words, he was worried that they were vacillating back and forth regarding their faith because of these afflictions. Now, in saying that, it's important for us to understand that Paul does not mean that he was worried that they were going to lose their faith, that they would no longer be saved. He'd already addressed that back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4, he recognized they were beloved by God, that God had chosen them for salvation. And we know from Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says, for whom he, God, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. This clearly details how the entire salvation process is accomplished by God. Those he predestines are called, guaranteed. Those he calls are justified, saved, declared righteous, guaranteed. And those he justifies are glorified. In this process, not a single person is lost. These believers were called. They were justified. And as Paul spent the first chapter showing, the proof of their salvation was their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. So Paul's worry here was not that they were going to lose their salvation. Rather, his worry was, was that their faith was being shaken, disturbed by the affliction in their lives. So that because of these afflictions, they would no longer trust God, His goodness, His plan. They would no longer be living in faithful trust of Him. And this is a very real concern for us when we are confronted with afflictions of various kinds. So as we talk about our response to afflictions, I want to address something up front that, that is important. When Typically, when, when we think of affliction or, or tribulation, it's, it's synonym in Scripture, we tend to kind of automatically think about things like you know, ISIS beheading Christians, or like we just talked about, Paul's being beaten and imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and certainly that is a very real part of affliction. 
But it's important for us to understand that, that the word translated affliction, again, and its, its synonyms, persecution and suffering, are not limited to only the physical. The word translated affliction, affliction is used throughout Scripture to refer to everything ranging, yeah, from death, it certainly includes that, but it also includes hatred and betrayal and distress and personal hostility. For example, 1 Peter, written to Christians suffering affliction and persecution, refers to persecution throughout the book, ranging in everything from verbal abuse to unjust discrimination to outright physical abuse. The point is, all of it is persecution and affliction. So when Scripture refers to affliction, persecution, suffering, it's referring to a wide range of difficulties that we are going to experience in this life, which takes us back to Paul's worry for the Thessalonians. And this is the point. All affliction, whether it's financial struggle, cancer, people verbally maligning us, or are being beaten to the verge of death for standing firm in the faith, all of it tempts us to cease trusting God and His promises as our faith in Him is shaken. It can cause us to to actually doubt God. Or as Paul puts it, to to have our faith be disturbed. As Darth Vader said, to stick with the Star Wars theme, I find your lack of faith disturbing. You know, when, when life is clicking along like we think it should be, we trust God, we sing His praises, life is great. But when the afflictions hit, that's when our faith is truly tested. And in some cases, it can be disturbed. And one of the primary ways our faith is disturbed is worry. Now, some of us are you know, perpetual worry warts. Others of us, maybe we don't go there too often. But eventually, worry gets all of us at some point. Eventually, something comes along in our life and we begin to worry. We worry about our safety. We worry about our health. We, we worry about losing someone or something. We worry about our finances. We worry about how we're going to provide for our family. We worry about our kids. We worry about our country. We worry about being alone. It, it never ends. We have a never-ending list of things to be worried about. And sometimes, sometimes, like I said, we can actually be consumed by the worry to the point where our lives are seemingly, seemingly governed, dominated by worry rather than by faith. Interestingly, while Paul was in Athens, he was dominated by worry, so much so that he dispatched Timothy to find out what was going on so he wouldn't have to worry anymore. But there's a huge difference between the worry I just described and Paul's worry. In other words, we might say there's, there's good worry and there's bad worry. There's, there's sinful worry and there's righteous worry. And, and what's the difference? Well, the difference is what is motivating our worry? Is the motivation us and our circumstances and our fearing our lives aren't going to work out the way we think they should? Or is the motivation God and His glory and our trusting Him no matter the circumstances? Because again, Paul had plenty to sinfully worry about in his life like we detailed at the beginning. It's not like Paul, after this breezy tour through Europe was now in Athens just soaking up the culture, visiting all the museums, eating at all the great spots, and sitting in a cafe one day just thinking, gosh, I wonder how those poor Thessalonians are making out. 
Paul wasn't enjoying Athens. Acts 17 tells us he was appalled by the idolatry throughout the city, and so his response was to proclaim the truth, like I said, in the marketplace every day, every chance he got, which, by the way, was the very thing that led to his persecution everywhere he went. In addition, at this point in his life, he doesn't appear to have been financially covered. We know he had to work to support himself in Thessalonica, After a short stop in Athens, he goes to Corinth where he had to work to support himself again, so it didn't look like his financial situation was in great shape. Like I said, there was plenty for Paul to worry about when it came to the circumstances of his life, but that doesn't appear to have crossed his mind because that kind of worry is sinful worry. That kind of worry actually blasphemes the name of God even as we profess right theology with our lips. Because what, it, what, it, what it's doing is it's saying to God, I know what your word says about you and all your promises. I know you're in charge of everything that, that you can't forget, that you're loving and all of that. But it seems like maybe you did forget in this case. Or, or maybe you're too busy. Or maybe you're not quite powerful enough. Or maybe you don't really care that much. Whatever the reason, even though I would never actually say those things, practically my life is saying exactly that. It's saying that's what I believe about you. Because in the face of the circumstances of my life, what I'm dealing with, I'm doubting I can really trust you. I'm full of fear and worry and anxiety because I'm doubting you really do care for me. I'm doubting you really are who you say you are. It's like a a few years ago when my son Bodhi was a little bit younger, I asked him one night to go throw his dirty clothes in the hamper, which is in the back of a a long hallway in the back room of our house, and it was night, and all the lights were off, and it was dark, and so he literally just stood at the entrance of the hallway, just standing, cowering in fear. And so I'm watching this, I said, come on, bud, I'll go with you, and I intentionally didn't turn the lights on, so I start to walk down the, the dark hallway, And he's literally still just kind of cowering and creeping down the hallway. And so I I looked at him and I said, Bodhi, what what are you worried about? I'm here with you. What what do you have to fear? I'm right here. There's nothing to worry about. You're good. Frankly, it kind of bummed me out. It was like he didn't really understand what my being there meant. (laughs) You can feel safe even in the dark circumstances of your life. I'm right here. Now, of course, I'm... I'm just a fallen sinner. It's not a sin to doubt me, but to worry and doubt God and His care for you is nothing short of sin. To worry is sin. It's doubting God is who He says He is, that we really can't trust Him. It's screaming to the world, I don't believe what I profess to believe. But as serious as that is, And if that's going on, certainly we should admit that and repent of it. Practically, it doesn't make sense either. Like Christ said in Matthew 6, 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? The answer is implied in the question. No one can, of course. So I have a question for you. Have any of you ever solved what you were worried about through worry? Has worry ever just sort of magically made everything get better? It hasn't for me. I've sadly spent too much time trying. It's never worked for me. I'm sure it hasn't worked for you either. Yet, we sinfully worry. 
which, instead of helping, in addition to our sinning against God, we hurt ourselves. We, we lose sleep. Maybe we get angry or depressed. We might become reclusive. We're unpleasant to be around, so now we're alienating those around us who love us, and we increase uh, the potential for a whole host of diseases that doctors attribute to stress and worry. So it makes no sense to sinfully worry. It makes us miserable. It makes those around us miserable. It doesn't change anything, and it causes us to sin against God. But chances are everybody here knows that. That is not news to anybody here. But we still do it. So if my whole objective today is just to stand up here and say, so guys, stop worrying. What is the problem? Come on, just stop it. That's not going to do anything to help us. It's not going to do anything to cure our worry. Rather, the only cure to worry is to turn to God and His Word. And in doing that, as we see in Paul, we realize the worry we should have is not worrying about us and our circumstances, but worrying about God and His being glorified. Now, let me quickly say, of course, I'm not saying by worry about God and His being glorified. That means we're supposed to be sitting around kind of fretting that God's plan is going to be thwarted. I'm not saying that. When I say Paul was worried for the Thessalonians, it's not to say he didn't think God's plan was going to work out. Rather, it's that he was concerned for them in a deep way. He loved and cared for them more than himself so that his thoughts were comprised of their difficult circumstances and how they were handling them as opposed to being consumed with his own difficult circumstances. His quote-unquote, good worry was his concern for God's glory through the gospel and his people. And how different that is from how we often face difficult circumstances in our life. And so we have to ask ourselves, in times of trial, where's our focus? Is it on God or our circumstances? Is our faith being strengthened and our joy supernaturally increasing through in the midst of our difficult circumstances? Or are we like a dog wagging its tail, vacillating back and forth between the truth we profess and how we actually live our lives? One of the ways to help us have the right kind of worry, if you will, is by knowing what our destiny is. Just like Luke Skywalker I'm here today to tell you, you cannot escape your destiny either. But your destiny is far different from the destiny of Star Wars. In in verse 3, Paul, in referring to their affliction, said, For you yourselves know we have been destined for this. The New King James says, appointed for this. And then he continues in verse 4, where again he says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, We as believers are marked for trials. This is our destiny. And what the Spirit says through Paul in verse 4 is so important because it directly refers to our worry. It says this shouldn't have come as a surprise to them. It says that in 1 Peter 4.12, which we just read a few minutes ago. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We shouldn't consider trials and suffering and afflictions strange things that are happening to us. Rather, we should understand this is part of our destiny. And it's the fact that we don't expect them, even though Scripture is very clear about that, I think is often so much of our problem. Because in our our wealthy, entertainment-driven, 
comfort-based, medically, technologically advanced society, we pretty much expect things to go pretty smoothly for us, if we're being honest. And so when they don't, we can be pretty shaken because it doesn't meet our expectations. Maybe that's part of what we're experiencing in our country right now, the, the culture sort of turning on us and, and hating us and are no longer having the influence we used to in our country is certainly not new to the rest of the world. It's not new to the history of the church. It's new to us. seems like the new normal for us, but it's nothing new. Paul said expect it. Peter said expect it. Our Lord said this is what you should expect. This is your destiny. I keep throwing around this word destiny, so I want to pause for a minute and, and just look, consider this concept of destiny. Like I said, this is not the destiny of Star Wars or maybe the destiny that you might have in your mind. This, this destiny, of course, is rooted in God and His Word. And God's Word is overwhelmingly clear about His sovereign control over everything, which certainly includes our destiny. And to say God is sovereign is to say, as the Westminster Confession puts it, God ordains whatever comes to pass. So the most basic definition of God's sovereignty would be probably something like, God is in complete control of everything. God is in complete control of all things. And one of the many, 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 many verses that refers to that is Ephesians 1.11, which says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. I love that verse. It is all-encompassing. He works all things, everything. No event in the universe, from the most minute to the greatest and everything in between, falls outside of His complete control according to His good will for His good purposes. And this very much includes our afflictions, as it says in 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is so incredibly significant to understand. Our destiny of affliction is not governed by some impersonal force. It's not just happening to you. Rather, all things are governed by the omnipotent, infinite, holy God who is love and who in love saved us even though it's the last thing we deserve and who will one day glorify us as we will be with Him forever, basking in His glory. And it is this God who loves and cares for you that you can completely trust in every affliction and know that Romans 8.28, He is causing, here it is again, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so this overwhelming truth just, it frees us from sinfully worrying. It frees us from just desiring escape. We aren't promised that. But we are promised that we will be cared for through our afflictions and that we can trust our loving God's perfect care and His using these afflictions for His perfect purposes, His glory, and our good. So now that we hopefully have a little bit better understanding of, of biblical destiny rather than the destiny of Star Wars, the question on the table then is, okay, how do we deal with our destiny? 
We know God is sovereign. We know He loves us perfectly. We know His plan is perfect. We want to trust Him. Oh man, I really, really want to trust Him. I know it's coming, but come on, it's not like suffering and affliction is really a whole lot of fun. So how do we deal with this when it comes? It's promised to come. How do we deal with it? Well, I think there are two truths that we should keep in mind, two, two truths that hopefully would just change our perspective regarding our afflictions. And the first is for us to realize God uses afflictions to cause us to treasure Christ more. God uses the afflictions in your life to cause you to treasure Christ more. That is a perspective-changing statement because it should cause us to view our afflictions entirely differently because our trials are here to test us to discover and display who it is, what it is that we really, truly love, desire, hope, and put our trust in above everything else. And so again, we have to ask ourselves in our destined afflictions, whatever they happen to be, even if they're heaped one on top of another, how is this exposing what I truly love, hope, and put my trust in? Is it showing that I I love, hope, and treasure earthly things, myself, my power, or Christ? Or, I have found this to be the case, often it's, well, I treasure, I trust in Christ and. It's Christ for sure, but it's also, it's Christ and that job. Christ and my health. Christ and a spouse. Christ and fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. And so if our afflictions expose that we treasure Christ and We should repent of that, certainly, but we should also just thank God that He's so gracious to expose that in us, and as a result, we should be compelled to run to Christ, to cling to Him, to know that He is our everything, and to make much of Him to the world as they get to see what it is that we truly treasure, love, and hope in. And that is Christ alone. It's not... Christ, as long as everything's going the way I think it should be and I have all the stuff that makes me happy. But it's Christ in Christ alone. People, people love to proclaim what they treasure. Just look at somebody's social media accounts. You can, in short order, see, oh, they, they treasure fitness or their football team or their family or their bodies that they love to constantly put on display. Whatever it is that we value or cherish, or gives us joy, we want others to know about it and the joy that it gives us. As disciples of Christ, that means our all-consuming goal in life should be what Paul's was, and that is to magnify and glorify Christ in everything because that is who we treasure the most, and it's our destined trials that expose that in us. So that's the first way we deal with our destiny of affliction. When it comes... Realize God is providing an opportunity for you to stop clinging to and hoping in and trusting in the things of the world and your ability to navigate this life and instead to cling to Him, to treasure Him completely. Which leads directly to the second way we deal with our destiny, which is to know it's God's will that His disciples will be uncertain about how things are going to turn out for us. 
Uh, of course, I, we know the end of the story. That's not what I mean. That, that's guaranteed. But it's between the now and then. It's God's will that His disciples will be uncertain about how things are going to turn out for us. Christ made this clear in a, a pretty jarring way. Luke twenty-one sixteen, a verse maybe you guys have read over dozens of times and never really stopped to consider. He's telling His disciples about the things to come and then He says, but you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. And you imagine those listening that day, some of them had to have been thinking, okay, we're, we're, we're going to tell us we're going to suffer affliction. I get it. But then some of us are going to die? Am, am I one of those some? Or am I part of the some that gets to live? And the question's left unanswered. We're all Christ's disciples. We all have the destiny of affliction, but we don't all have the same story. Look at the apostles. All the apostles suffered as was their destiny, but it wasn't the same for all of them. James was martyred very early on. Peter was martyred as well, but, but much later. And then you have John who suffered persecution but was never martyred. Or how about Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr, but then you have Philip who was boldly proclaiming Christ about that same time period and he went on to live a pretty long life. We can be certain that our destiny includes affliction, but we can't be certain about what exactly that means for us. We really have no idea. But think about how freeing that actually is. Rather than that bounding us up, think about how freeing that is. Because when those in the world who have no hope are confronted with not knowing when or how they'll die, they often respond with something like, I mean, you hear this all the time. I just heard it last week, a couple uh, unbelievers talking about a 21-year-old they knew. And it, the response is always a uh, 21-year-old who died. And the response is always something like, um, you know, you just have to live life to the fullest because you never know when it's going to be over. Man, this life could end anytime. You just got to get everything you can out of this life. Just live it to the fullest. That shouldn't be our response to this. Our response sh- certainly should not be to cower in fear and worry. Because ironically, it's the not knowing the details of our story or how and when, to, uh, when it's going to end up that actually frees us to not live for this mist of a life, but for the eternal. And it's freeing because it allows us to simply, like we just talked about, trust Christ in everything. Not to trust the path that He has laid out for us with every detail that we would ever want to know. Not trust our ability to protect ourselves and to figure it all out, but to trust Him. The only right good response to the difficult circumstances in our lives is to trust our God because we know nothing is happening outside of His will. We know He will use it for His glory, His purposes, and our good. He promises us that without giving us the details for our individual lives, so we will learn to trust Him. That's what faith is. That's what this life is. It's living a life of faith in Christ. So really, it doesn't get better than that, because rather than getting all the details, we get more of Him. That's what we're promised. Not the roadmap to our destiny of affliction, but more of Him in our affliction which is far, far greater. Which leads to an eye-opening biblical truth. And that is, there is no such thing as safety. If we're going to define 
safe by how the world would define it. Safe, secure, living, free from suffering and affliction. Like we've been talking about, that's our destiny. That, that's a myth. But let me clarify what I mean by that so I'm not misunderstood. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise stewards and, and save money or, or have life insurance policies or other vehicles that wise stewards might employ. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is if we think our safety and security is found in those things, our careers, our bank accounts, our retirement accounts, the health of our family, and so on, if we're making our decisions in life around perpetuating those things and trusting those things, then we really don't understand what our destiny is, and we certainly do not understand what it means to live in a life of faith of God who is in control of all those things. Remember God's curse against King Belshazzar, who was enjoying a feast when God showed up and there was a hand floating in the air that wrote on the wall, wrote a curse against him, and Daniel's called in to interpret this, and and in the interpretation, Daniel reminds the king, Daniel 5.23, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified, and he died that night. Safe and secure. The only reason you get to take one more breath is because God ordained it. Safety and security is a myth, as the world defines it, and we so often buy into it. But we have to recognize our only safety and security is found in God, not because we'll be freed from suffering and trials, we won't, but because in our affliction we can trust Him, we can know He is in complete control, and through that He wants to teach us to live with Him as our everything, to love Him and to proclaim His love and to love Him for who He is, not just the gifts He gives us. Quoted 1 Peter 4.12 earlier by not being surprised by trials. Verse immediately before that, which I believe we read as well, says, let Him do so by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so in in case all of this is overwhelming to us, this is how we live this. It's done by His strength, for His glory. And through that we receive more of Him. But we also gain something incredibly practical that I think we all desperately desire. And that is joy. True joy in all things. And we find this in 1 Peter chapter 1. I, I would ask you to turn there if you wouldn't mind. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to close with this. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This just beautifully ties together everything we've been studying this morning. Where's our joy according to these verses? Our joy is found in our salvation in Christ. He is our treasure. He is who we look to in the midst of our suffering and afflictions and then again verse 8 says and though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and that ties it all together for us we treasure and trust him more through this destiny of affliction this destiny is the path to the fullness of the true joy that we all desire but is only found in Christ as a result of our trust in Him being proven through testing, resulting in our treasuring Him above all. So like Obi-Wan said, better yet, like the Spirit says through Paul, you cannot escape your destiny. It's been chosen. It's been chosen by the one true God, our loving, perfect holy God, who knows that it is our destiny of affliction that leads us to glorify Him and love Him and treasure Him and find our joy in Him, our everything. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for Your Word. We're so grateful for Your constant work in our lives. As we approach this communion table now, God, I just pray that we would treasure and trust You more in a powerful way and that it would extend to our lives as we leave today, that we would find our joy in everything, and especially in our affliction, in you. Amen.